you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. We want to look at verses 33, uh, 34 through 40. Uh, the Great Commandment is what I've titled the message here. So uh, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word now. Pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you note on the overhead, uh, we have the, uh, the outline of the book of Matthew. And the theme is Christ the King. We have worked our way down to the formal rejection of the King. Many lines of evidence presented in the book showing that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And now the issue is, what would the nation's response be? They rejected Jesus Christ at his first coming. That is, Israel did. Well, in our study here in Matthew 22, we are on Tuesday of Passion Week that climaxes in the crucifixion. And uh, that Tuesday was a very busy day at the temple. A little overview in terms of what has happened. On Sunday, we had the triumphal entry. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he inspected what's going on at the temple. On Monday, he cursed the fig tree, and he cleaned or, or cleared the temple. And then it's Tuesday. On Tuesday, he explained uh, the withered tree, the withered fig tree, and then we have these temple controversies. They keep these religious leaders, they, they are attacking Jesus, in effect. They're, they're trying to tangle him up in his words. They're doing the best they can to try to uh, get him to stumble in some way. So we have these temple controversies with the religious leaders. Well, on this day, the Pharisees, in league with the Herodians, approached Jesus with a gotcha question about taxes. Want to get somebody in trouble? Just ask them about taxes, especially in front of the government people, right? Well, Jesus reduced them to marveling by saying, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Next up, here come the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the truth of the resurrection. And so they came with a gotcha question about seven men who had been married to the same woman. Uh, you know, one's married, dies, another one dies. No, I mean, moral of the story is don't marry that woman. I mean, you're going to die. Uh, <laughs> these seven all had her as wife. And then the question was, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, Jesus responded them by telling them they were mistaken because, number one, they didn't know the scriptures. And number two, they didn't know the power of God. And then to refute the mistaken notion that there is no resurrection, which is what the Sadducees held to, there is no resurrection. Jesus quoted from Exodus 3, 6, where God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There it is. There's the resurrection. You see it there, right? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Clear as day, the resurrection. Right there. That's his answer. That's his proof of the resurrection. Uh, Well, how do you get the resurrection out of this? He kind of expected them to see it. And they did, I think. The answer is this. God was in covenant relationship with these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in covenant commitment, God had promised them a special land called the promised land. The problem was, they never saw the land. 
Not a one of the best they could come up with is Abraham bought a little burial plot. That was it. They never owned the land. They lived in tents as strangers and pilgrims. I mean, they never possessed the land. What about this covenant promise to these three patriarchs? Well, an enlightened deduction would be that they must be resurrected in the future in order for God's promises to them to be fulfilled. And that's true. God's covenant promises have to be fulfilled. He personally, individually, to each one of those men promised the land. They never saw it. This demands a future fulfillment, and that demands a resurrection. Will be fulfilled in the kingdom. All of the promises to the patriarchs, to Israel, will ultimately be fulfilled in the kingdom. Sometimes we see that faith is all about making the proper deductions based on the revelation that God has given. Let me give you another example. In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham by telling him to go and offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Are you kidding me? We waited all these years to get this son, and now we're offering him as a burnt offering? I mean, this is almost, it's not funny, but it's... its you know, kind of a crazy thing. <laughs> Offer up your son Isaac as a burnt offering. Well, this was the son of promise through whom God had said he would make Abraham a great nation. So what was Abraham to make of this? Well, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, tells us the faith deduction that Abraham made. We read about it, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Faith involved in here. And he who had received the promises, the promise that through this son, God would make a great nation. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding... Enlightened deduction, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, which, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham was convinced that if he killed this son, God had made a covenant promise that through him uh, was going to be a great nation, that he'd have to raise him up again from the dead. So Abraham, as a matter of faith, knew that God must fulfill his promise to bring forth descendants through Isaac. And therefore, he made the enlightened deduction that if he killed him, then God would have to raise him up from the dead because that is the only way the promise could be fulfilled. We have a similar thing in Exodus 3.6. This text proves the truth of the resurrection because a resurrection is required in order for these patriarchs to see the land promises fulfilled. It was an enlightened faith deduction. Well, that brings us to round three, where once again the Pharisees set about to test Jesus. Note, we pick it up, Matthew 22 and verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and I'm sure they almost felt like giving a little clap for that. I mean, they were theological enemies. And so, okay, he shut down the Sadducees, and and that was good, but we still want to get him. And so they gathered together, they're plotting The Pharisees didn't give up easily. They are here to throw everything they've got 
at Jesus in an effort to stump him with the goal of discrediting him. Now, again, uh, they were undoubtedly happy that he had silenced uh, their theological enemies, the Sadducees, but, but they here are now ready to line up and give it another go. Uh, the parallel text is found in Mark 12, 28 through 34. They gathered together in an unholy huddle, if you will, to come up with a plan, and they evidently chose one of their sharpest minds, uh, sharpest members, to present Jesus with another shall we say, elusive question. I think one that they had long debated. And so, here he comes, uh, verse uh, 35, Then one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying... Now, the idea of a lawyer in this context was someone who was credentialed and recognized as well-schooled, well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, The word lawyer is essentially synonymous with scribe, or teacher of the law. And as a lawyer, he was a recognized expert in God's law. I mean, if anybody knew the Bible, this guy did. He was a lawyer. That's what in this context uh, reflected. He was thus qualified to be a teacher and serve as a judge in the local courts, etc. He was skilled and able to argue a case convincingly. The text says he came testing testing Jesus. But in the greater context, it almost seems more like he is a representative of the Pharisees. That's the flow here. And as such, he is there representing their goal of testing Jesus with with trying to discredit him. It doesn't seem that he himself had sinister motives or came with malicious intent. In Mark 12, 28, it says that he had perceived that Jesus answered the Sadducees well. So he's watching this. And on that basis, came forward with this question. So it was a testing of sorts, uh, again, but it does not seem to be brought forth with a malicious spirit. Verse 36, here's his question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Teacher was a respectable address, and yet stopped short of the esteemed rabbi, which was reserved for credentialed teachers. Very possibly, this was a sincere question on the part of this lawyer, and one that had often been argued among the scholars of the day. Since Jesus answered the Sadducees so well, he wondered if Jesus could also answer this challenging question. In Mark 12, 34, we find that Jesus, in the end, commended this lawyer for interacting wisely with him. So, what about the question? Uh, Which is the great commandment in the law? The Jews counted 613 total laws in the Pentateuch. Uh, They counted 248 affirmative laws telling you what you should do. And 365 negative laws telling you what you should not do. And they further divided these laws up into two categories of heavy and light. With the heavy ones being absolutely binding and the lighter ones being less binding. Even though some of the laws were heavier uh, than others, as even indicated by Jesus in Matthew 23, 23, even so the law was a unit, and to break even one law was to break the whole thing. Note in James 2.10, it says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. 
You see, you either keep the whole law or you break the whole thing. As in the breaking of one law, you have broken it. It's like a windshield. If it's broken in one place, the whole thing is broken. It's a unit of one. And that's how the law was. To break even the the lightest of the laws was to be a lawbreaker. To keep the law of Moses, one had to keep all 613 laws all the time without fail at any point, which was impossible. God doesn't grade on a curve. He demands absolute perfection, which is humanly impossible. And this is why we need Jesus. The law drives us to Jesus. The law was all about you do this. Grace is all about what Jesus did. We need grace. We're not saved by law. Law shows our condemnation. We can't do it. We need Jesus to do it for us. We need grace. We need a Savior because we can't do it. We can't be good enough. That's what the law shows. The law really shows guilty, 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 guilty. You're breaking the law of God. But the question from this lawyer was, out of those 613 laws, which one was the greatest? The most important, the most binding. Well, a popular appeal was to one of the Ten Commandments as being the most important. Uh, Maybe it was the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Maybe it was, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, what, What was it? Well, in view of all the debated and ponderous opinions bandied about in the rabbinical schools, how would this teacher answer? It was a very challenging question that was sure to uh, put this new teacher, this teacher here on the scene, to the test. Or so they thought. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Note, Jesus did not hesitate at all. He was instantly ready with an answer, and such a profound answer that no one could argue with it. You see, Jesus did not say, oh, that's a very hard question that's been debated through the centuries. I'll study it, and I'll get back to you. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, well, you know, no one can be sure. I'm not sure. Nobody can really know. There's mystery here. He didn't say that. No, he was immediately ready with an emphatic answer. Only the God-man can answer like that. His wisdom was unparalleled and speaks of his divine human character. Now, he quotes from a section of Scripture that has come to be known as the Shema. The Shema was uh, known as Israel's great confession of faith. Pious Jews would quote it twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. The word Shema comes from the first word in Deuteronomy 6.4 and is the Hebrew word translated here, here. Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, Shema, Shema, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5 to make his point. The rest of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 reads as follows. 
And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, technically, for the Jews, the, the full Shema for the Jews included Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, that I've read for us, and also Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and then Numbers 14, 37 through 41. This is what they considered to be the Shema in total. And Orthodox Jews would quote the entire thing twice a day. I mean, the more serious you are, the more... You know, you quote the whole thing. Maybe you just want to quote a verse or two, but that's really not where you really do the whole thing. In addition, Orthodox Jews would copy part of the Shema and other portions of Scripture on small pieces of parchment and put them in little boxes called phylacteries that would then be worn on the forehead or on the left arm of Jewish men during their prayer times. And the Orthodox still do this, right? There it is. It's on his forehead. It's on his arm. I mean, uh, they're still practicing this, even today. In wearing these little uh, phylactery boxes, they believe that they are fulfilling the Shema, which calls for having God's commands as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. Also, pious Jews commonly place small boxes called mezuzahs, with the Shema in it, on their doorposts. So they do this as well. You know, what's this, what's this? Well, it's the Shema in there. Well, in just a short time, Jesus would rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees for their ostentious uh, display of their phylacteries in Matthew 23. They missed the point about it being in their hearts, And they turned it into an outward show. Now, the Pharisees were probably thinking that Jesus would quote one of the Ten Commands as the greatest, as that was commonly the debate. But instead, he completely sidestepped the Decalogue and instead quoted the all-embracing command every Jew would know as the Shema. It was so profound that no one could argue with it, Every Jew knew this was the most important confession in Judaism. And yet, strangely, they really missed, no pun intended, the heart of it. The word love is the intense word for love, namely the Greek word agape. Uh, This word emphasizes a love born out of the will. It emphasizes seeking the other's highest good. It's a commitment of devotion governed by the will, and it's intentional. So the great command, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God. This is the most important thing. And the command is to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now there's overlap here between the heart, the soul, and the mind. Really, the emphasis is not so much on separate categories of our personhood, but rather emphasizes the whole person. The whole person. We are to love God with all that is within us. That's the sense of it. But in order to emphasize this point, Jesus does bring out these overlapping categories. 
The first thing emphasized is that we are to love God with all our heart. In Hebrew thought, the heart symbolized the innermost core of a person's spiritual being. And it was a comprehensive idea involving the, the, the will, the mind, the emotions. It's a very comprehensive idea. So in general, the heart was seen as the seat of choices involving devotion, loyalty, and allegiance. We have verses such as in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The soul is closely tied to the idea of emotions. Our affections are totally to be given over to God. The mind refers to the thought processes related to decisions that need to be governed by proper understanding. The Jews had a zeal for God, but were lacking in their understanding. Religious zeal is misplaced if it is not governed by correct thinking that aligns with sound doctrine. Now, in the parallel passage of Mark 12, in addition to with all your heart, soul, and mind, it also says with all your strength. Again, the sense is you are to love God with everything within you. Uh, If we were to summarize what we're talking about, the heart represents the core of our being. There's overlap, remember. Soul, our personhood, mind, thoughts, reasoning, strength, ability. Love God with every capacity of your whole being. Now, the Jews had come to have a legalistic, sterile type of religion. It lacked heart. It lacked love. It lacked being properly God-centered. Now, in the Shema, they missed two critical, the two critical words of love and heart. Note them again here in Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Again, the emphasis here is to love God with everything that we have within us. Our whole being, our whole heart, soul, and mind. Now, if zeal for God is not governed by love, it really misses the entire point. True religion is all about heart, love, relationship with God. Love in the scriptures is closely tied to obedience. We're not saved by love, but the key fruit of saving faith is love, which is shown in obedience. Note the emphasis in the Old Testament here in Deuteronomy 10. Now, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What's he looking for? What's he want? But to fear or reverence the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. Jesus said in the New Testament, if you love me, keep my commandments. I don't know, have you ever had this thought? You say to the Lord, I love you, and it's like it comes back. uh, If you love me, are you keeping my commandments? Strong emphasis, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Indicative of really knowing God is that you do love him. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Very strong. 1 John 2, 3, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Which is another way of saying we love him and we want to obey him. 
Now, no believer loves Jesus as faithfully as they should. Not even close. We are all in process, and none of us have arrived yet. Still, as Paul says, true faith works through love, Galatians 5, 6. When we sin as believers, we hate it. And that is the point. Down deep in the core of our being, we have a new nature that is wed to the Holy Spirit. And I can promise you the Holy Spirit always hates sin, as does the new nature. Down deep in the core of our being as new creations, we want to obey, although we struggle. And we feel the pull of the flesh. And as James says, we all stumble in many things. The struggle is indicative of having spiritual life. John in 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him. We love him because he first loved us. We do love him, albeit imperfectly. Peter says, even though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. 1 Peter 1, 8. The real acid test of genuineness is the affections of the heart. Andrew Brunson was in a Turkish prison for two years. And he warns professing American Christians that many seem to be on the brink of being massively deceived. And he says, I quote here from his article, the messaging from our culture is that pleasure and self-fulfillment are the highest values. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Be authentic. Be true to yourself. The church has been marinating in these values to such a degree that many Christians have absorbed them. I think he's right there. Some leaders will compromise to avoid persecution. But there's a more insidious reason because it comes from seemingly good motives. The desire to protect their ministry. They might think, if I avoid certain issues, then I'll be able to continue my ministry, which is producing fruit and serving people. So we may end up with an approved church, one that aligns with progressive values that's pitted against those who remain faithful to Jesus. Our culture will applaud the one with progressive values as being loving and inclusive and tolerant and will condemn those who remain faithful to Jesus as the church of hate. By the way, only the devil can make love look like hate and hate look like love. He continues, this is how many could drift away through deception. We will likely see an exodus from the church that remains faithful to God's word. And some in the rush to distinguish themselves from the people of hate will actually turn against the people they had considered their brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's massive deception. The great issue before God's people today is as it has always been, do we really love God supremely? And if we do, we will be obedient even Unto death. One time a lady in our church came to me and and her brother doesn't come to our church, but she said to me, uh, her brother says, you know, when this uh, homosexual thing comes and and they start pressing in on you, your pastor is going to cave. And she came to me and she says, is that true? (laughs) 
Well, I don't want to be Peter and say, I'll never, you know, I'll never deny. But by the grace of God, my, my full intention is to be, I want to be faithful. No, no matter what happens, uh, that's the goal. If we are obedient, we will seek to be obedient at all costs. And if we do, then we will stand for sound doctrine and not compromise. By the way, what is real love? I think real love, what about love for God? What about love for his word? What about love for the lost? I think it tells it like it is. It shares out of concern. It's not trying to beat people, but it's concern for their soul. This is the real test. Am I willing to suffer in my stand for Jesus? That's the ultimate test. You you know what Christ calls us to? Suffering. Christ calls us to the way of the cross. Uh, We are crucified with Christ and crucified to the world. This is the real test of love. Paul, at the end of Ephesians, says, Grace be with all. All those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Verse 38. This is the first and great commandment. The number one commandment with the greatest priority is to love God with everything in you. This is singularly the great commandment. And then verse 39 says, And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment is similar to the first one in that it is also a love commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This command comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word neighbor essentially refers to one who is close, one who is close by. And in the context of Leviticus, it really focuses on the covenant people of God. But as Leviticus 19 goes on to show, there is application for the resident alien as well. Uh, Same chapter, a few verses later. Okay. Uh, Leviticus 19, 34. The stranger who dwells among you, you shall... uh, Among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him. As yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is not to say there's no special love bond between Christians, because there is. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the household of faith does have priority. I often say we love the unbeliever evangelistically, but the right hand of fellowship is reserved for fellow believers. There's a special love bond between Christians. Ed Glasscock says, Should one understand the command to love one's neighbor as to love every human being exactly the same, uh, then there would be nothing significant or unique about John 13, 35. You know, the new commandment that we love one another as, as he has loved us, which is to mark Christians as Christ's disciples. Though every person, having been made in the image of God and, and therefore having worth, should be treated with respect and concern... The love Christians have for one another is to be unique, standing as a living testimony to our connection with Jesus. Also note that some have sought to twist the meaning here and say, we must first learn to love ourselves so that we can then love others 
as we love ourselves. But that's really not what Jesus was saying. As he says in verse 40, there's only two commandments here in view, not three. The only two commandments in view are loving God and loving your neighbor. Ephesians 5.29 says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Loving your neighbor here assumes you already love yourself. That's the most natural thing in the world. We care for ourselves first and foremost. The focus here is loving your neighbor as you already love yourself. The focus is to be other person focused. Uh, This love is other centered, not just self-centered. In Philippians 2.3, Paul says, The mind of Christ is to esteem others better than yourself. Loving God and loving people, however, are closely related. In 1 John 4, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must also uh, love his brother. Moody Bible Commentary, these two great commandments are not mutually exclusive. For if one loves God, he will love what God loves, and God loves people. Bottom line, verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, in effect summarize the two tablets of the law. The first table is God-oriented, and the second table spells out our obligations towards people. So, uh, you know, you can't see them here, but we call this the first table of the law, uh, first four commandments, God-oriented. Then uh, these last six commandments uh, are obligations towards our fellow man. Honor father and mother, etc., etc., etc. The whole of the Old Testament hangs on these two commands of loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, everything in terms of human responsibility is ultimately about love. You know, this whole book, really, Jesus says, it's all about love. It was really love that was at the heart of the Old Testament. It's also at the heart of the New Testament revelation. There's a distinction, as we will note as we go along, but uh, follow this. The two love commandments, amplified in the two tables of the law, further developed in the law and the prophets. As D.A. Carson says, the entire biblical revelation demands heart religion marked by total allegiance to God, loving Him and loving one's neighbor. Without these two commandments, the Bible is sterile. These two love commandments are most basic, touching on all the relationships of life. Now, often people are confused about the purpose of the law of God and our relationship to it today. Okay, we got this whole Old Testament. Should we just cut it out, unhitch from it, as some say? And just, you know, hey, it's just only the New Testament is all that has something to say to us today. No. Often people are confused about the purpose of the law of God, but it has a purpose. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. The Mosaic law was given only to the Jews. It was never given to the Gentiles. As I said earlier, it was a unit of one. I mean, you either keep the whole thing or you've broken the whole thing. It was a unit. And it was never a means of salvation. 
No one is under the rule of the Mosaic law today. And those that do really put themselves in great jeopardy in terms of what we find in the book of Colossians, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews, and so forth. It puts us under a legalistic code that we've been unyoked from way back here at the cross. Yet, having said that, the Mosaic law today has a place. It is inspired. It is still profitable. In the final analysis, all people in all times are accountable to the glory of God standard. The holy glory of God standard. And this is the issue that Paul made. As he works through how everyone is under condemnation ultimately... He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the ultimate issue. The glory of God's standard. The glory of God is his character and his nature. God himself is the standard of what is right. The glory of the Lord in Exodus is shown to be synonymous with the name of the Lord. And hence, his glory denotes his very nature and character. Now, the Bible says that God is love. 1 John 4, 8. This defines the very person of God, the very glory of God. And God's nature never changes. He's always been love. God's glory standard of love is that to which all people are accountable. As Jesus stated, the whole law is summed up in loving God, and loving your neighbor. Now on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. Love transcends the law because it defines God himself. But this standard of love is also reflected in the law. Not everyone in history has been under the Mosaic law as a code. But they are responsible to the glory of God's standard as represented in the law. You see, the issue is ever the glory of God, which is seen in his love. The issue, therefore, is not accountability to the law as a system of rule, but accountability to the glory of God, which is represented in the law. And that's a major distinction. You see, people of all times are accountable to this glory of God standard. Doesn't matter when they live. This standard of love is always in view at all times under pre law, under law, and under post law. In other words, the standard of God Himself is always the issue. What the law did is reveal this standard in a pronounced way that enhances what was previously known only in the conscience of men. In his conscience, mankind knows that it's wrong to lie and steal. But the law magnifies this reality. As a code, the law was given only to Jews. But it illustrates a universal truth. Namely, that all come short of the glory of of God. No one measures up to the glory of God's standard as revealed in the law. Nobody. And this is Paul's very climactic point in in Romans chapter 3. Notice what he says. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, so he's bringing in the law here. It says to those who are under the law. It's making a point. But it has a universal point. You say, well, yeah, it proves something about the Jews. <laughs> no, no, it's broader than that. That every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. The law of Moses shows that we are all guilty of breaking the law of God's love. We fail to love God as we should, and we fail to love people as we should, and the law proves it. And this continues to this very day to be a present tense, lawful use of the law. As seen in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice what Paul says there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That is, properly. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners. And he goes on listing a whole bunch of categories. Revelation was progressive. God revealed himself in various ways and he did it in the order that he did for a specific reason. Humanity is pretty slow and so God, you know, takes his time in making his point. The law was given to reveal God's holy character and therefore man's sin with even greater clarity. And then... Then, under Christ, comes grace in sweet relief. As it says in John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This reality of the glory of God's standard as revealed in the law is consistently brought out in the New Testament. It continues to be the measuring stick by which we are to live. But here's the deal. It was not possible to live up to the love requirement as seen in the Old Testament law because of human weakness. God says, here's my love standard expanded in 613 laws. You do this, you're really loving according to God's perfectly holy standard, loving God with, with, with your all and loving your neighbors yourself. But... That's where we have problems. We can't do it. Now we come to a new covenant relationship. And the new covenant not only pays for the penalty of sin, but empowers us to live according to God's holy standard by the Holy Spirit. The difference is the Holy Spirit. We have now been empowered by the Spirit to live it out. So God, through Jesus Christ, has now brought about a whole new covenant, which involves the Holy Spirit coming to live inside us as believers, to empower us to live out love in a way not possible under the old covenant. And this is where Paul goes after his frustration in Romans 7. He gets to Romans chapter 8, and he says there that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? How is it? How can it be fulfilled? How can I live according to this standard? The righteous requirement of the law. How can I do it? 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's the key. Romans chapter 13, Paul just keeps coming back to this. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Say, Paul, we're not worrying about any of that. Yeah, we are in a sense. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not, not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this thing. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. He's making application to where we live today. How do you live out love? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, he kind of does the same thing. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You're not under a legalistic code anymore. You're now under the law of Christ, the law of love. You've been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul consistently applies this love principle, which is the glory of God's standard as revealed in the law. The reason he does this is because it is this transcendent love standard to which all are accountable. So note that while none of us today are under the law of Moses in any way as a code or rule of life, there is a transcendent glory of God's standard reflected in the law. And that standard is as unchanging as the very person of God. This standard, as reflected in the law, is an exceedingly valuable tool to reveal sin. It doesn't reveal the answer to our sin problem. That, that's New Testament revelation. It's found in Jesus Christ. Yes, rooted in the Old Testament. But uh, it was brought to light in the gospel. It reveals sin. That's what the law does. It did that certainly in relationship to Israel, and it does it by way of application to all people because we all come short of the transcendent glory of God. This is a lawful use of the law as spelled out by Paul in 1 Timothy 1. So note the close connection between by the law is the knowledge of sin in Romans 3.20 with all have sinned and come short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. The issue is not to put people under the law as a code to live by. By the way, nine of the Ten Commandments have been repeated and incorporated into the new covenant code that we do live under, right? With the exception being the Sabbath law. But the issue is not to put people under the legalistic mosaic law, but to show that they come short of the glory of God as revealed in the law. The law is no longer binding, but the glory of God is. Today we are not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. That can be only lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is supernatural living, which is what we are called to as God's people. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is supernatural living because it's done in the power of the Spirit. 
Only true Christians who have the Spirit can live this way. And it's powerful when we do. The true great realities of the new covenant is that we now have a total permanent forgiveness based on the blood sacrifice of Christ. And as believers, we now have the Holy Spirit living within us, which totally transforms our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is first and foremost love. So really, the whole Bible is about love. I mean, the whole thing in the Old Testament hangs on these two great commandments, to love God, to love your neighbor. The New Testament. Uh, okay, Christ is a new commandment I've given to you. What is it? That you love one another as I have loved you. It's all about love. Problem in the Old Testament was they tried to do this. They had to do this within their own strength to cut, and they couldn't do it. Now we have the Holy Spirit, and that makes all the difference. According to the parallel passage in Mark 12, the scribe at this point said to Jesus that he had spoken truth, and Jesus responded to him by saying, You are not far from the kingdom. You know, if I was him, I would have said, You know, how can I get in? (laughs) You're not far. My prayer that you would not only be close to the kingdom, but that you would be a kingdom citizen by putting your faith in Christ. You see, none of us can love like the law demanded. No one can keep the law. And that's why we need Jesus. And even as believers now, when we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the law in the sense of we love as we ought to love. But none of us do that perfectly. We're in process. Galatians is very clear. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in, in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith. In Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And then again, uh, Paul in chapter 3, in the next chapter, says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you're all the sons of God through faith in Christ. Augustine said, If you are silent, be silent out of love. When you speak, speak out of love. If you rebuke, rebuke out of love. If you spare someone, do it out of love. A famous theologian once said, A life has as much value as it has love. As God examines the lives of his children, the great issue on that day will be our love life. How did we love? And the issue will be the great commands to love God supremely, and to love others as we love ourselves. Will God help us to love well? There will be a test. We can't do it in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. God help us to live according to his great command to love. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.